0: Please turn your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there's one provided under your chair, under the seat in front of you, and that will be, our passage today will be on page 965. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take that one home with you. And if you are new to the Bible, the small numbers on the pages are called verses, the large numbers are called chapters, and we're in chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 9 through 20. 20. The book of Revelation is a letter written to Christians in modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor at the time. This was written around the year 90 to 95. It was written by John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John that we have earlier in our New Testament, the same person who wrote the three letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the Bible. And because of what John had been saying about Jesus, he had been banished to a small, isolated island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Uh, A small, isolated island sounds like the fantasy of every introvert in our midst, or the fantasy of every tired young parent in our midst, but he had been banished so that he couldn't influence people with the truth of the gospel anymore, and we see how well that strategy worked out uh, for the Roman authorities. But John was given the vision of this book uh, to give comfort and hope to persecuted Christians, Christians who are being uh, mocked for their faith, being killed perhaps for their faith. And what John was doing in giving this vision that was given by the Lord himself uh, to John was giving hope to his people of what the certain outcome of world history was going to be. Letting God's people know that Satan's final doom is certain. You don't have to wonder what the end of history is going to look at. So one theologian uh, summarizes the book of Revelation this way, the message of Revelation is that Christ is the reigning and returning king who rules over all creation, including Satan and his forces. Difficult times are sure to come, but in the end Christ and his people are given the victory. So if you wanted to Take all of that and summarize the book of Revelation as succinctly as possible. You could say, Revelation says, God wins. That's what this book is about. And so, with that in mind, please read along silently as I read aloud from Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Who do you pay attention to? We all pay attention to someone. There are various people we perhaps listen to more than others, people we listen to more than others. But if I wanted to try to figure out who you listen to, I could... uh, try several techniques, most of which would be thrown in jail, but one of those would be to check and see which magazines come to your mailbox. Or I could check and see which websites you spend the most time visiting. I could find out what your uh, favorite music is, what podcasts you listen to, which games you play, which cable news station you prefer, which library books you check out, in which newspapers arrive on your porch. All of those would give me a window, albeit perhaps a a limited one, but a window into who you pay attention to. Of course, I could also just ask you, but you may not even be aware of who all you listen to, so you might not even be able to give me a complete answer of who you pay the most attention to. Radio ads call for our attention, for us to pay attention to them. There's one that uh, we enjoy hearing once in a while around here about Reese's, where they just say the word Reese's over and over again and expect you to go buy or at least eat the Reese's cups that you already have in your home. Uh, So in that case, the the Reese's company is appealing to your personal experience. They're assuming you've had a Reese's, that if you have had a Reese's, they're assuming you want more. And so they're appealing to you on the basis of your personal experience. Some ads appeal to us on the basis of a trusted messenger. So perhaps you've heard a recent uh, commercial for some kind of a medicine or medical treatment where the guy goes, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I try whatever, whatever medicine, and you should too. Which assumes that you know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is and that you want to trust what he has to say. And perhaps you're sitting here wondering why this matters at all. Maybe you're wondering that because you're not a Christian and you aren't even sure why you're here in the first place, and we would say thank you for being here. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I can listen to whomever I want to listen to. I can pay attention to whomever I want to listen to. This is a free country, so I'll listen to who I want to. And that is true. You can. But let's not kid ourselves into thinking that we aren't influenced by other people or that we are our own free thinker. But the portion of the Bible that we're studying together today isn't about influence in general or the various voices that you listen to through your newspapers and magazines and podcasts and so forth. This is a passage about paying careful attention to the most important voice you could ever listen to, the most important person in the world. This passage calls us together to pay careful attention to what Jesus reveals. Pay careful attention to what Jesus reveals. And you would naturally ask the question, why should I pay attention to what Jesus says and what he reveals in this portion of the Bible? And this passage gives us three answers. You saw, even as I read it perhaps, that it's broken up, at least in the English Standard Version here, into three sections. I think your Bible probably has something similar. Uh, Three paragraphs, we could say. But in the first section, we see that we should pay careful attention to Jesus because he reveals his love. Pay careful attention to Jesus because he reveals his love. We see Jesus' love in verses 9 through 11 in two ways. The first is that he shows compassion to his faithful servant. And that's John, who was described earlier in verse 1. He was his servant John, who is... uh, in prison because he was he bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then we see in verse 4 that this is John who is writing to these seven churches that are in Asia and here again in verse 9, I John your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So here John is described as your brother. He's saying he's part of the same spiritual family that you're part of. Same spiritual family as his readers in the 1st century. He also says he's their partner. He's working on the same mission. They're trying to accomplish the same spiritual goals, working toward the same spiritual ends. This is the same idea that Paul had in mind in Philippians 1, where he talks about the shared partnership that Christians have in the gospel. This is why we pray for other churches, even as uh, Clayton just prayed for Emmanuel Baptist down on Roosevelt Road. We pray for dozens of other churches in our area. This is why we host a conference for pastors coming up in September. This is why we give money to the Chicago Course on Preaching. Because we think that the mission that we are engaged in as a church and as Christians as a whole is super important. It's the most important mission that you could ever possibly be a part of. And John specifically lists three aspects of his partnership with his readers and our partnership together with other Christians. John is partner with his readers, he says, in the tribulation. Following Jesus is hard. That's what he means when he says, I'm your partner in the tribulation. You're going through hard things. I'm going through hard things, John says. But we're in this together. We're partners together in this hard time of following Jesus in a world where Jesus is not well thought of and many places where those who follow Jesus are not well thought of. So John says, I'm your partner in the tribulation. I'm your partner in the kingdom, he says. As I mentioned, you could summarize this book to say that it's about saying Christ rules and reigns over all things, over all times, over all people. And so he invites us to serve in his kingdom, to follow him as his loyal subjects. And in this book of Revelation, we see more clearly than elsewhere that we also rule with him. Which kind of blows our minds. We are partners with every other church that is faithfully preaching the same gospel message that we are. And so we as Christians need to, as much as possible, avoid being in ministry silos, where we feel like, I need to insulate myself from other churches. We're going to be independent. We're going to stand for who we are and not let anybody else influence us too much. We need to avoid tribalism, where we feel like we're stepping on each other's toes. Uh, where it, we, we could feel threatened if LaGrange Bible Church gets the new family that moves in the town instead of them coming here. And we need to avoid territorialism. Uh, again, this is why we're grateful that there's a Presbyterian church that right now is preaching the gospel faithfully less than five minutes away from us. Praise God that we share so much theology with them. If we feel threatened by the fact that another church is proclaiming the same mission that we are we have the wrong enemy in mind. We're not paying attention to who our real enemy is and what the threat that we face as Christians really is. And John says <clears throat> that we are partners together, that he's partnered with his readers in the patient endurance. So here what he's doing is describing the whole of the Christian life as being one of patiently waiting, patiently going through hard times together until the very end. Patiently enduring hatred, mockery, isolating being isolated from other Christians as the Christians in Iraq that Clayton just prayed for would feel isolated. Perhaps enduring obscurity like the thousands of pastors of small churches who right now are preaching the Word of God just like this one right here, doing the same work every single week because we are partners together in the same mission patient endurance, doing hard tasks until the very end. So John describes himself as a brother and partner. He says, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, middle of nowhere we could say, and why was he there? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, Uh, Using the same expression as back in verse 2, he's saying, I was where I was. I was in jail because I wouldn't be quiet about who Jesus was because of what he was saying specifically about Jesus. And I would just ask you, to what level of discomfort are you willing to go when you tell people about Jesus? When we think about what our brothers and sisters in some parts of the world are experiencing right now, we can say the waters that we're experiencing are relatively calm right now, right here. Christians in China or in Afghanistan or in Morocco might be telling a different story because they're counting the cost, because they're saying, if I'm going to follow Jesus, it's going to be very hard. John was banished to a small, remote island because he wouldn't be quiet about Jesus. But he's showing, the Lord is showing through John love by showing compassion to this faithful servant. He comes and he ministers to John himself by giving him this vision. The Lord also shows his love, reveals his love by giving his message to his church. This is in verse 10. John says, I was on the spirit, on, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. To say he was in the Spirit, this is basically saying he was receiving a message the same way that Ezekiel was in the Spirit. In Ezekiel 3, he was carried away in the Spirit. The same way that Isaiah and Jeremiah describe being in the Spirit in different times and different ways. Essentially saying that he was prepared to receive this message from the Lord, that he was being spoken to by the Spirit of God. And he says this was on the Lord's Day. And this is the only time in our New Testament that the Bible describes uh, this expression in this way. It's referring to Sunday. It's referring to the day that Christians, even in the first century here, would celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And so it came to be known as the Lord's Day, the day of worshiping the Lord and celebrating the Lord. And that's what we do every single Sunday. It's essentially Easter every single Sunday when we gather together to worship Christ. Now the New Testament uses other terms to talk about Sunday, worshiping the Lord on Sunday, as opposed to Saturday, which had been the practice of God's people leading up to this. But uh, typically the New Testament will call it something like we, worshiped, we gathered on the first day of the week in commemoration of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And what we find out is that church history tells us that what people did when they gathered on the first day of the week or on the Lord's Day, even in the first century, we are still... Worshipping the Lord in the same way, using the same elements. In the same kind of structure, by and large. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might wonder why we include what we do. I mean, I realize if you're a Christian, you might ask the same question, but perhaps non-Christians particularly would be like, why in the world do you do things like sing together? Like, that is so weird. Where else in our culture do people sing together? Like, fight songs at sports games, and pop songs at outdoor community concerts and patriotic songs on the 4th of July, and where else do we sing together? Christians sing every single week. We sing five songs, basically, every single week. And we do that because, not because it's weird, but because the Bible tells us to do this. We read scripture together because the Bible says to do this. We preach because the Bible says to do this. We want to urge you to take the Bible just as seriously. It's actually written for your benefit. It's written for your benefit. The message of this book is that a holy God made us to worship him. And we, as humans, messed up really badly, really fast. And we deserve God's judgment for our rebellion against him because of our sin. Our problem as people isn't primarily that we are hurting and wounded. People are hurting and wounded. Let's not minimize that. But that's not our primary problem. Our problem as people isn't primarily that we're lacking education. There are entire countries in this world that are lacking the kind of education that would be wonderful for them to receive. But that's not our primary problem. Our primary problem as people isn't that we're experiencing poverty. There are entire countries that are experiencing poverty in comparison to what we live in. Our problem as people is that we have rebelled against a holy God. But for his own glory, God gave his only son, Jesus, to come to earth to enter this broken world marked by sin and violence and corruption and injustice and abuse and destruction. And he lived among us perfectly. And so where we turned against one another, Jesus turned toward us, moved toward us, tabernacled, lived among us, and then laid down his life for us sacrificed himself, and then miraculously came out of the grave and ascended back to heaven shortly thereafter. And so now, whoever trusts in him as the only one who can save them will receive the forgiveness of sins and be considered righteous in God's eyes. And instead of having your sins held against you, you have Jesus' righteousness applied to you. And this is what we urge you to believe here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. This is the message that we are willing to die for. This is the message we are going to preach every single Sunday. And if you have questions about this, such as how in the world am I supposed to believe that a dead man came back to life? That is a good question. We would love to talk about that more afterwards or to have lunch with you later this week. But for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, you have already believed that. You have already received the assurance of forgiveness of your sins through Christ this is why we take membership here so seriously at Brainerd. We think the Bible's very clear that regular participation in the life of the church is a non-negotiable. And that unwillingness to regularly partner together with other Christians is almost always a critical red flag that's blowing in the wind. Almost always. Obviously, there are exceptions for those who cannot get to church because of physical conditions and so forth. But church, I urge you, if there is a member that you are aware does not come regularly maybe you can be the one that decides what regularly looks like but if there's someone in your mind like that i would urge you to reach out to them and to invite them and tell them hey we've missed you recently would you be willing to come to church this sunday and i'll take you out for lunch afterwards or have you over to my house afterwards so that we can catch up a little bit doing that is a way of showing the love of christ to those people this passage is showing the love of Christ to us. His love is clear because he gave his message to his church. And notice I'm saying to his church, not to his churches. Verse 11 mentions 11 specific cities and the churches that are in those cities. And we'll study those the letters to these churches in a few weeks in one kind of overview sermon of all seven letters. But I think we, un- we can understand there were more cities than these cities, and there were more churches than these churches. And so what Jesus is doing by saying send the message to these seven churches is saying send it to all the churches, then and now and forever into the future until the Lord returns. Because the dangers facing those churches are the same dangers facing our church. The need for repentance in those churches is the same need for repentance that we have in our church. Jesus was loving to address his church in this way. And so give thanks to him for his love in wanting us to hear what he has to say. This passage urges you to pay careful attention to Jesus because he reveals his love. And secondly, pay careful attention to Jesus because he reveals his divine identity. That's the focus of verses 12 through 16. He reveals his divine identity. John turned in verse 12 to see the voice, which is a unique way of saying this, Basically, he's turning around to see who's in the room with me. You know, I thought I was in this little dank, dirty, dark prison cell by myself, and now I'm hearing this loud voice like a trumpet. Who is it going to be? And so he turns around, and he says in verse 12, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That phrase right there should make your mind immediately go to Daniel chapter 7. We saw this a lot in our study of the book of Luke. Son of Man is the title that Jesus used for himself the most of any title in the the Bible. And when we read in Daniel 7, uh, a unique vision that Daniel is having there, but let me read a a particular portion of this while you look at this passage here. I would urge you to keep your, your eyes fixed on Revelation 1 here. And particularly on verse uh, 13 down through verse 16. And just kind of be having your eyes run over that while I read a couple passages from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. So Daniel 7 verse 9 says, this is Daniel speaking, As I looked, thrones were placed, and then the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Then down in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now listen to this from Daniel chapter 10 verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Do you see those resemblances there? What John is doing is using the book of Daniel to show you Who he saw was God. He's taking any question out of this. I didn't just turn around and see an amazing angel. I saw God in the person of Jesus. And to say you saw Jesus means you saw God. So what John is doing is saying when he saw Jesus, he saw God. And that means he deserves what? He deserves your attention. He deserves for you to listen Carefully, you can drown out the sound of all those other voices competing for your attention because the one who deserves your attention is God. Here in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, he talks about this long robe and the golden sash. These are what the the priests wore in the book of Exodus. So it's showing that Jesus is himself our priest who represents us before God and represents God before us. He describes his white hair showing the wisdom of God. The fact that he is eternal. Eyes like flaming fire probably speaking of his, his purity. And on and on. He talks about this voice like a roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls or even starved rock after a heavy rain and you go to one of the waterfalls there and it's hard to hear somebody you're talking to or for, for that person to hear you because of the sound of many waters. And that's what... The voice that John heard sounded like he had a sharp sword coming from his mouth. Using all kinds of imagery, simply to say it was clear to John he was hearing from God Himself. So pay attention to him. He says his face was shining like the sun at its brightest, at the, as if it's the full fullest point of the day. We were driven on a bright sunny day during winter. When there's snow all over, and the sun, it's a crystal clear blue sky, the sun is shining brightly, and even with sunglasses, it feels like you're being blinded because of how bright the light was. That's what John experienced here. And you might be wondering, how in the world are we supposed to draw conclusions about what all these descriptions mean, about these seven stars, and these seven lampstands, and all of this? And I would say... Uh, sometimes the passage tells you what's happening, tells you what it means. And this is actually one of those. I think there's about a dozen passages in Revelation where John interprets for us what he's seen. He says, I saw lampstands, and really what I mean, what I saw was the churches, and so forth. So we'll see that in a few minutes here. So sometimes the passage itself tells you what's happening. Sometimes it's because of the way John uses the same phrase from elsewhere in the book of Revelation. So, later on in the book of Revelation we're going to see that Jesus has eyes like flaming fire. Talking about his purity and his holiness and his hatred of sin. And So the way that John uses that phrase elsewhere in Revelation will help you understand what he means in this passage. Sometimes it's based on the way that John uses a passage from elsewhere in the Bible altogether. So, he's talking about what it means to be in the Spirit, well, we're seeing he's basically quoting Ezekiel 3 there. So the way that Ezekiel was in the Spirit when he received the message of that book, we should understand that's what is doing here. And sometimes, we have to admit that sometimes the way we draw conclusions about what a certain part of Revelation means is because we have a theological paradigm, like a box, and we're fitting things into that box because we're coming to the text with a paradigm already established. Every person has a paradigm. Some are maybe a little bit smaller, some are bigger, some are more accurate, some are more faulty. Maybe there's some things in the paradigm that shouldn't have gotten in there. We have to weed those out. But especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've come to expect the Bible to sound a certain way or to say certain things a certain way, to promote certain qualities and criticize others. All I'm saying is, If I have nothing else to fall back on as an interpreter of the Bible, I'm going to fall back on that paradigm, and that's what you do as well, every passage that you read, whether we realize it or not. But thankfully, we have a lot of help. John helps us understand a lot of what he says, and the way he uses even the number seven, which he does dozens of times, if not hundreds of times total in the book of Revelation, the way he uses it, he shows, and by that I mean like all the churches, or all the hills or all the stars and on and on and on. So we should pay careful attention to Jesus. That's what this passage is calling us to do. We should do that because he reveals his love in verses 9 through 11, because he reveals his divine identity in verses 12 through 16. And finally, we should pay careful attention to Jesus because he reveals his authority in verses 17 through 20. He reveals his authority. Maybe you should ask this question. On what basis does Jesus get to say what he says? And the answer is in verse 17. He says, Jesus laid his hands on John, which shows Jesus' tenderness toward him. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. That's a way of saying Jesus is eternal. That's why he gets to say what he wants to say, what he needs to say. He's eternal. And what he's doing there by quoting the fact that he's the first and the last, he's quoting Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, passages that are explicitly talking about God himself. Once again, Jesus is God. He's eternal. That's why he gets to say what he says. He also gets to say what he says because he's the living one in the beginning of verse 18. He even died. And then he's, he came back to life and he is alive forevermore. So after being resurrected, that's why he has all authority because He is the living One. What does He have authority over? The passage tells us that as well. I have authority over death and Hades. He says the authority idea there by the fact that He holds the keys. They're in His hands. He's the one who instituted the penalty of death for our sin. He's the one who endured death for our sin. And He's the one who ends death by His own resurrection. And we're going to sing in a few minutes that by the fact that Christ came back to life, we have hope that we will be resurrected. What a foretaste of deliverance we have in Christ and in his resurrection. So he rules over death, the enemy that we will all meet, some sooner than others. But everyone in this room will meet this enemy. But it's an enemy whose keys Christ holds in his hands he conquered this enemy by his own death and by coming back to defeat it. He also has all authority over the church. We see this in verse 19 and 20, particularly in verse 20. As for the mystery, this strange thing that you saw, John, that you weren't sure what it was, you saw those seven stars in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, let me tell you what those mean. So this is an example of John telling us the interpretation of different matters. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John was John saw Jesus walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. That's John's way of saying what Paul says multiple times, that Jesus is the head of the church, that he is the one who rules over the church. And we try to communicate this in multiple ways. Let me tell you a couple ways that we here at Brander try to implicitly, tacitly tell you that we think Jesus is the head of the church. One of the ways is the reason I urge people just to call me Eric and just to call Clayton Clayton. I'm not offended when someone calls me pastor. I do have a name, but it's fine to call me by a title too. But I'm a sheep just like you. I need shepherding just like you. And so, this is Jesus's church, not mine, not Clayton's. We're sheep just like the rest of you. And we try to communicate that. Being elders doesn't make us lords. We don't get more vote than you do. This is why we don't have different parts of our building named after different people. So when you go into a classroom, it's not like the Ernest P. Morell classroom for education or something. I don't even know who Ernest P. Morell is. I just, I've heard that name before. <clears throat> it's fine to do that at a university, to have like this section is the so-and-so fellowship hall. Fine. At a university, that's great. But in a church, we're here to worship Jesus. Put all the attention on him. This is the Jesus Sunday school classroom, or whatever you want to call it. I would just call it a Sunday school classroom personally, but I'm just saying you can leave other people's names out of it. In our members' meeting, someone who's been a member for two months, which is we have them every two months, so if somebody gets voted in in July, in September, they get one vote. Just like the people who have been here for 20 decades, which there's no one like that, and just like the people who are elders here, or just like the people who teach Sunday school here. You get one vote, I get one vote, because Jesus is the head of the church. There's not one person who r- runs it, however, he wants to. He or she wants to. So we're here because Jesus is the head of the church, he's the authority. He's the one who died to save the church. He's the one who created the church. He's the one who will return for the church. He's the one the church is called to serve and reflect and glorify. In verse 20, who are these angels? That's a a live question for a lot of people. It seems to be that John's reflecting that there's a heavenly element to what we're doing here on the earth. That's why I understand that there's a heavenly element going on that there's a spiritual element even in heaven while we are here worshiping on earth and what we're doing every single time we gather like this to worship is to reflect that what's happening in heaven is happening here on earth and what's happening here on earth is in, in a sense happening in heaven as well why was it so important for John to write all this down because Christians were suffering because they were enduring hard lives And so he's telling them, keep going. Don't give up now. The end is in sight. God wins. The Lord will make right all that is wrong. John also wrote this because people were sinning. and He's saying, stop sinning. Repent now. You still have time. Fight your sin. Turn from it. Get help if, if need be. And I would ask you, which of those applies the most to you? Do you need the encouragement and the admonition to keep enduring? Or do you need the urging and admonition to keep fighting your sin? Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He alone has the authority to bind your conscience. And he has the authority to loosen your conscience. So pay attention to him. We all pay attention to someone. The only question is, Will you pay careful attention to Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Lord, make us people, we pray, who listen carefully to your voice through your word. Who commit ourselves to hearing your word proclaimed week after week in a place like this one and who are eager to do all that you have revealed to us. We thank you for the love in what you have revealed, for the purity and authority in what you have revealed, and for the identity that you have revealed to us, that you truly are the only God. And we give you great thanks today for calling us to be your people. In Christ's name, amen.